Before we start today's episode, I want to give a quick shout out to Zencaster, which is a podcaster's best friend. Trust me when I tell you this, Zencaster is like the Shopify for podcasters. It's all you need to get up and running as a podcaster. And the best thing about Zencaster is that you get so much stuff for free. If you are planning to check out the platform, then please show your support for the Founder Thesis podcast by using this link, zen.ai slash founder thesis. That's zen.ai slash founder thesis. Hi, I'm Mohit. Hi, I'm Malika and we are the founders of the Moms Company. Ek minute, stop. Ready, let's go. This could be a great intro. People often say that direct-to-consumer or D2C is nothing but old wine in a new bottle. But this episode is an explainer in the fundamentals of building a new age brand and how it differs from traditional brands. Mohit and Malika are the husband and wife duo who founded the Moms Company after a personal challenge as new parents looking for the best skincare products for their kids made them realize the gap in the market. Malika is a passionate mom turned entrepreneur and is really the best brand ambassador for the Moms Company. And Mohit is a McKinsey consultant turned entrepreneur who helped Malika build up the Moms Company. Company. This episode is a masterclass in building and scaling up a D2C brand and here's Mohit and Malika telling Akshay about how it all started. What is super attractive about the London office is saying that you need to be like super super kick-ass in McKinsey to be able to make it for two subsequent cycles and only if you've done it for two subsequent cycles do you sort of make the cut to be eligible for the London office in McKinsey. So Mohit got the opportunity, he made the cut which was anyways hard. And then I was five months pregnant. So then came a discussion saying that as five months pregnant, do you move now? Do you not move? Should I go now or should I not go? But I think the opportunity was too good to say no. So we decided to leave. So I quit my job from ICICI and moved to London with Mohit. And Mohit sort of went in there and lined up having our first daughter in London. And yeah, I had a blast in London. Yeah, so it was, I think one of the best decisions we made. A large part of why even the bombs coexist and started sort of came up from our stay at London as well. There's this thing that I keep telling a lot of Indian moms have saying that we do a lot for our kids. And like internationally, people don't do too much for their kids. And I think I landed up in London and that myth was broken. And like how? Because most of the moms kind of made me feel like I'm not doing enough with my child. And the typical, and I'm, I sort of, sort of fell into that typical mom guilt thing because feeding our children was what was sort of really pushing it really hard. But they were constantly working on stuff that could help them improve their brains. Um, you know, help develop the brain properly. Then there was stuff happening around taking your children out. There's a very, very strong thing of spending time with family and spending time with children and taking them out, right? Making time for families, big concept there. So I think I saw a lot of that happening. And during the course, you move five months pregnant to a city which doesn't have a doctor. Which has a lot of doctors, but doesn't you don't get access to doctors because you get into NHS. And with NHS, if you're pregnant, you basically get midwives there. So uh, starting from a space where you're like, you have a lot of doctor attention to going not seeing a doctor and figuring out who you sort of consult with, where would you go. And, and NHS, the doctor doesn't take the decision for you. So they give you with a lot of reading material and you make your own choices. So I think it just taught us to be more aware of what we were choosing. And that kind of stayed with both more than me throughout our journey as parents as well. So, uh, how did you end up starting Bomb School then? Like, uh... we came back in 2012. 
sometime towards the end of the year where we had this little concern that Myra had on her skin. And uh, I kept asking doctors and they would keep giving me this steroid-based cream. And I would keep putting it, but the condition would come out somewhere else. And it just sort of kept happening till I met this one pediatrician who told me that this is because of dry skin. And I was almost in a state of disbelief because I was using a really good moisturizer. And, and also the fact that I had gone through so much trouble trying to figure out what her skin condition was. And the doctor just saying it needs, it's not good moisturization and you need to change the moisturizer. Once the start of when she told me this was like, the question started in the mind saying, why is this moisturizer really not moisturizing, right? As, and as a parent, you were used to questioning what you were choosing. And when I started questioning more and more of what was there in the product, why was it actually not doing the task it was supposed to do, was where I realized that a lot of products have a lot of ingredients that are not classified as safe globally. And there were a lot of brands that were using those ingredients. So one was that. The other was because of her condition, she needed allergen-free, fragrance-free products which are not available. And the more the question I would ask to the Indian mom saying, what are your options? I realized that they didn't have a very choice, very clear choice of brand that there was that was theirs. And that's how we said, I think there's a space in the market to create something in the space of natural, organic, safe, uh, effective. And then sort of took that leap of faith to sort of figuring out, say, can we do that in India one? And if we can, then what does it take to kind of make it work? And that was how the mom school started, actually. Okay. So, uh, Mohit, let me ask you this. Like, oh, what was that... Uh journey from realizing, okay, this is a gap in the market to actually shipping the first set of products, like from that idea to... It's very interesting, right? So what Madhika said in parallel, what was happening with me was I had gone from McKinsey to Snapdeal and I was heading growth and strategy with Kunal and Rohit. And what struck me about that experience was that, you know, I walked away thinking the true consumer of internet in India is going to be the mother, right? Because she is uh, living on a budget. She is now discovering a lot of new things on Instagram and Facebook and Facebook groups. She has across India, historically not had too much access to newer brands, except what's available in retail near her house. And now e-commerce is enabling this entire retail journey for her, right? So when Madhika said, here is a problem area that we must solve and let's make sure moms don't have to go through what we went through as kids for our kids. I came at it very differently saying if I was to combine e-commerce and social media, then there's possibly a brand that can be built, right? And this was when DNVV was all over the place in US, but D2C in India hadn't even started, right? Five years ago, it's now a bigger age, but at that time, nothing. It wasn't done, right? So when we spoke to people, they said it's impossible. But e-commerce and social media, I think, was fairly quick. The biggest challenge that Malika and I had actually was, this is a category, if you think about it, it's quite a stupid space to start because the amount of trust you need to build with a mom as a new brand is extremely high, right? Why would someone trust an unknown brand, an unknown label for something as sensitive as their kids? So Malika and we actually spent a lot of time getting the brand right. We got Shripad Natkarni as a mentor. He's the guy who built Johnson's in India, then went on to consult with 250 or other brand gurus. So we got him on board as a mentor and advisor. He, you know, had a very significant in the journey, role in the journey. We got a manufacturer after a lot of hunt. The one manufacturer that had actually been with Kama Ayurveda in their start and had been with the forest essentials at their start. 
right? So very amazing scientist, formulator who was known to create very high quality products had a factory. So we found that and convinced him to join us in the journey. So it was very interesting putting all these pieces together. And when we were starting, I remember this, another founder told us, your first step of getting stuff out will take you three times the time that you estimate and three times the money you estimate. And both of those came true. Right. So you walked in saying the brand is done and the products are ready. And it took us exactly nine months from start to actually getting our first three, four products out into the market. Mm-hmm. So uh, how did you fund this? Like uh, you must have been paying uh, for brand consulting and you would have to pay something to the manufacturer also. Like yeah. how are you funding all this? So we put in the little bit that we had and we also raised a very early angel round, friends and family round of one crore and 15 lakhs. And that funded it. The, the biggest bet we took was a large chunk of that we put into the brand. Because we said the brand is what will stay with you first. So brand was the top spend out of that. And then getting the product was the spend out of that. And of course, the second month of launch, by that time, people knew what we were going after. And we got DSG and Sama as uh, VCs on board and did our first uh, check about 12 months after that angel round was closed. Wow. So when was the angel round closed? From a timeline? Uh, so we decided to do this by March 2016. The angel round we closed by about September. So we closed that first angel round about six months after we started the work. Okay. So when you say spend on brand, what all does that include? Like, are you talking of the imagery, like spending on good quality photo shoots and website or like what, what all does it include? Like to, to really invest in a brand, what does that mean? So a lot of things over time. I tell you at the start, it meant getting the best designers available to create the brand identity for you, right? And this was a brand identity where we said, like like we said, building trust in a category like mom and baby care is very, very hard, right? And the design that you choose and how professional it looks and the color scheme and the fonts need to marry that, right? So the decision-making of what the brand should look like, we had two very different routes and the one we eventually went with, right? So it was everything from what should the brand name be? What should the color be? What fonts are you going to use? What sort of packaging will you use? And because we knew always that this has to be a much larger vision that we want to go after. We want to help moms do everything possible. Uh, So that even in the early start, the question was, even though we are launching in pregnancy, in fact, which was the first category, how will this packaging scheme evolve from pregnancy to baby care and beyond that as well, right? And all of that thinking had to be done upfront. What I find today with a lot of founders, especially Back when we were there, right, we were starting, it, we had a deep passion about solving a problem. And what I find most founders get stuck on is what next, right? Let's say I do and solve this problem phenomenally well, but I've taken on VC money. I need to keep growing bigger and bigger, right? And you created such a sharp brand that while it did fantastically for the niche you started with, uh, you get stuck as you go forward. Right? And we had that sort of advice. And so we were preempting that with the branding early on. Right? And what a name like the mom school allowed us to do from the very beginning, it was very clear that we were not baby soap brand. We were a brand that would solve everything for moms over her lifespan and over her journey. And all of that had to be built on those very early roots and building blocks of the brand that we created. Essentially, it allows you to present yourself as a like a larger feminine beauty wellness brand. Instead of yeah, just a... yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it seems stupid at that time, but I'm glad we did it. We had 
with the Momsco name, we had four categories drawn out of what the Momsco would look like in those four categories. We had renders of storefronts, right? Where the Momsco name was plastered on a top, right? So if we ever did do stores here, is what a store would look like. Because a lot of things that happened. Thanks to your McKinsey experience that you were able to take this as a consulting assignment uh, in terms of the detailing that you did, like. I think the consultant experience made me realize I you need the best mentors and guidance in the front. So we had Sripad on one side, but we had Nandu also who retired as a global board member at Nestle. Right? We also got in touch with him and got him as a mentor. So a lot of the decision making and what to do, especially in the early days when you're setting it up, came from them. Right? I think Malik and we were very clear from the start that this is an area we need to solve. And we really want to create a big, meaningful business out of this, but we don't know it. Right? And so the, the best mentors possible and the best agencies possible, best investors possible is who we need to create. And it's really that ecosystem that will build the brand, right? Malika and me are, are the enablers for that. What gave you the comfort to take this risk, Malika? Like going and asking friends and family for money is like, I mean, you're, you're putting yourself on the line then, right? if it doesn't work out. No, I think if you ask me, I was extremely passionate about building this. I saw a huge opportunity in it. And we really actually did not take too much of family money. And in hindsight, it is the biggest sour point that everybody in the family has today. Saying that we all offered and we refused to take. Uh, our only logic at that point of time was that you did not know how this would play out, right? D2C is a very new concept. When we started, we were one of the early people uh, who started off on the D2C kind of a journey, right? So so we hadn't seen what it, how it would play off. So we actually told family to stay out. There were some very interesting friends and mentors who came along the way. And for them, it was all about the idea. And the fact that they wanted to sort of attach themselves to the idea. And of course, the background that Mohit had, a few people who'd worked with him, wanted to put in money. I think it's, I think very initially when you put money, you put in money on a large part of it is on the founders and the founder's vision. And it's and a little bit about whether you sort of kind of have any kind of uh, understanding or affinity towards what they're building, right? That that's largely what it was. But I was very sure that there was definitely a gap in the market, and it had to get filled. And I thought it was a really large opportunity. And uh, you often tell people, for me, I think the biggest moment of truth or the fact that this could be big was when. In the process of while we were doing the brand building and we were working with this agency too, kind of the, the largest expenses what Mohit spoke about, right, from that 1.1 crores that we had raised was when we were doing consumer research and in consumer research, we were going to interview a family and a lady in South Extension. So for the people who don't know, South Extension is one of the most premium localities in Delhi, right? But what we did not know was that it also has a little part to it, which is not the affluent society. Yeah, so, it has. Um, yeah. We up, yeah, so we landed up going there, and once we reached there, I was kind of looking at the agency, saying because I couldn't, I could, I couldn't take my car inside. Like I had to park the car outside, and we walked up to the building. It was a really large building, but the building was split by different colors, and it was only later that we realized, and we were sort of sitting in and very, very filmy. If you could just portray it like that, right? Like we had few aunties sitting down, few kids playing below, and one child came in and said, "Kiski ghar jana hai aapko?" And I said, Ki ghar He said, come, come, aap chalo, I'll take you there. And we realized that one building, the different colors meant the houses on every people's house that was different. So we went to this lady's house. She was about four months pregnant. And we entered the house and you entered into her kitchen and a welcome sort of a space. And then there's a bedroom. And that's it. That's the entire house. 
So our entire interview actually happened in her bedroom. And there's a small bedroom where one side there's a life-size uh, marriage, marriage big portrait. And the other side is a little TV. And that's, that's where your room, we sat at the bed, we were interviewing her. And while we were interviewing her, we realized that she had gone multiple times to the body shop store to make a purchase. And she had not purchased it from there, but she constantly went in to keep checking on what it was. She apparently bought some set from L'Oreal, which was 3000, which was spoken of completely in the whole course of the event, at least four or five times. But the fact that she actually took that money out to buy something for herself was really interesting for me, right? And that sort of said this, this is a new version of Bharat coming up where everyone is extremely aspirational in nature and really wants something which is good for them. And I think she was a large part of the reason where I got my conviction from, right? And I walked off from that meeting and I told her, if we, actually not after the meeting, it was before the meeting when we were walking up and she said, where have we come? And I turned around and said, Chalo, to hai. but you know, like if this is where we can reach, then we have a huge, huge market. And it was just that that woman had spent so much money on her skincare. So it was extremely interesting for us. And that kind of, you know, again, sort of went back to saying that, yes, I think we could do it. I think the doubt was, the doubt was very unpredictable at that point of time because neither had natural picked up and those conversations had not started on being safe. We were one of the pioneers who started that conversation. So whether the idea will hit home or not, which is where the Bradley Excel that Mohit spoke about was not just packaging, but it was also what would the brand stand for? What would be the brand's identity? What would be the brand name? What would the brand communicate first, right? And what are the first things to send it? The conversation that you were having on, did you spend on photography? No, we never spent on photography. Like Mohit had, when we were having Myra, our first daughter, Mohit bought his uh, DSLR that got used extensively there. And it gets ex extensively used for mob school photo shoots. <laughs> because all of those things happened in our home. Because, you know, like when you raise money from really close friends and family, you're very, very careful of where you're spending. We never took a salary for almost about two years. Uh, while we had their money, right? And then all we did was call friends and families, their kids to model for us. The photo shoot happened with sometimes Mohit doing the photo shoot, sometimes I doing the photo shoot. Really much later than we actually got professional photographers, professional videographers to actually do the whole set of shoot. But yeah, so a large part of it just went in defining who the mom school was, what the mom school was, what would it do, what would be its values. And I think that as a brand book was what we kind of spent the first set of monies on. So uh, Body Shop must have been both an inspiration and a potential competitor, right? Because essentially, you were building a body shop from India, right? With the, with a similar promise of no nothing which causes allergy, nothing artificial, no chemicals kind of products. Like Actually, you know, maybe the proposition was quite similar to what Body Shop was. But what we were building was not really another FMCG brand. What we were building was a brand that was for the mother and for the changing mother of today, right? Like she wanted some brand which she could trust. It was, if you go back in time when we were growing up, our parents took a particular pride in saying that we are ex-babies, right? And it was largely because of the brand love that that particular brand owned. But over a period of time, it just sort of lost its charm and nobody else managed to replace that with anybody else. And the idea with the mom school was as the woman enters her journey into motherhood, all the way till her child is barely grown up, can we be that one partner for her? So it wasn't, it was never meant to be and still isn't 
just another brand. It is more of a partner. So that was the intention with starting the mom school. So Mohit, uh, tell me about like which category launched first, what kind of numbers did you see and how how the business part of it was uh, shaping up? So we started interestingly in pregnancy first, right? Pregnancy was as a category when we looked at it versus baby care. What we found that while for baby care, retail is possible, for pregnancy, it just isn't, right? Because women go through that as such a short duration of time. In retail and in offline, for you to find any cohort of pregnant women around the shop is fairly hard, right? So actually it's impossible to build a pregnancy brand offline and we had seen no innovation in pregnancy at all online. Right? So rather than go head on in baby and burn a lot of capital there, we started in pregnancy first. It was a very interesting category because I think within a month of launch, we were already bestsellers on Amazon. Well, so you directly launched uh, on marketplaces like? So we directly launched on marketplaces and again the logic there was what do we want moms to build trust on? Do we want them to trust the Momsco as a brand and therefore the brand is available everywhere and a bestseller in maternity? Or do we want the Momsco over time to for them to trust our D2C website? And again, D2C wasn't big, right? Four, five years ago, websites were still new. So we lost a pregnancy first. And for the first year, uh, we did only pregnancy care. Right? And what that did for us is it helped us build our own credentials in learning moms and moms trusting us. Uh, it got us to bestsellers in certain categories very quickly. And very interestingly, in the first few years, we were actually betting big on the entire Dr. Channel as well, right? So when we, as a completely new brand, went to meet gynecologists with the product, their first reaction was, where were you guys when I was pregnant, right? Because they had seen no innovation in the category at all. And so that really helped us get supporters within maternity, right? And the top gynecologists in Delhi and Bangalore started recommending the product, again, building on trust. So this was our first year journey. It worked really well in establishing. What were the products in pregnancy? Like what? So we had India's largest range of pregnancy products, which is four, right? We had a body butter stretch mark and a body wash which also helped with nausea and morning sickness. And we had a foot cream for swollen feet and ankles. And so a very large portfolio from a maternity perspective because people had only said stretch marks mm. so far. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, right. right. So that did very well. And, and but, uh, what, what kind of numbers? Like what kind of... So at the end of the first year, we were talking about, I think about 25, 30 lakhs a month. Okay. Uh, and and, and this was uh, after DSG had come in. Like. Yeah. Yeah, so DSG Sama came in because they had been looking for baby care in India as... Uh, as a space to invest for a long time. So they actually committed when we were doing two lakhs a month, right? Our uh, our second month. Hmm. And how much did they, like, what was the size of that check? Like uh, A million uh, in the first round. Then between them. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So year one, primarily around uh, pregnancy, 25 lakhs a month you ended year one at. Then. Yeah. And, and the entire idea was to build trust, right? And uh, at the end of our first year, of being a maternity, then we went into baby care. Right? And then the second year, we launched baby care. Then the third year, we expanded that further Wait, because the definition... So of second year would be like 17, uh, 16 you started, right? So, so 17, 17 was the first year. In fact, in a few, in a month or so, we'd be celebrating five years as a brand. So March 2017, we launched. 15th of March 2017. Exactly 15th of March 2018, we launched our baby care range. So that's about four years old now. And then and, and what all is baby care? Like uh, what all products? Baby was the word portfolio, right? We had spent about two years developing the entire range. So we did a baby wash, shampoo, hair oil, massage oil, baby powder, diaper ash cream, that everything. Eight products, which is all the basics that a baby needs with similar 
very high product quality, clinical trials, in all sorts of testing, all natural, certified toxin-free. Yeah, like, I guess you must have been like neck-to-neck with Bama Earth around that time, no? They also yeah. were pretty much around, I think, 17, 18 is when they... Correct, correct. Very similar time frame. And what was your customer acquisition strategy? Like, how were you building awareness and getting people to buy? Like, how were you generating sales? See, we're very clear from the start that we are going to be a mom-focused player, right? We never really said that we're going to become a very large, generic personal care brand. And so all of our marketing strategy revolved around that. A big part of our customer acquisition was Dr. Z. And we spent a lot of time. In fact, we were the first brand in India that created a shop-and-shop model inside hospitals, right? So we had the first stores that got created in waiting rooms and now trained Mom counselors would actually work with the moms and tell them about products and ranges and why our products were different. We'd work with doctors to educate them about the products and ranges. And that was a very large piece of the strategy. We did that for about two years. And then as COVID hit, we actually moved away from the doctor-led model to going more into mass retail. Right, So that was a big part of the strategy. And then the second part of it was working very closely on online groups. Right, Malika was constantly on various Facebook groups looking at what's happening over there, very closely connected to the entire mom influencer ecosystem. And they were a big part of the supporters, you know, for us. Malika, maybe you can talk about this, like in terms of how you generated awareness, buzz, like what all stuff you did to really drive up sales. So I think, uh, as Mohit said, right, of course, it was the usual stuff that we were doing on our D2C site and on Amazon, which were the first two partners we had. But other than that, I think what we did was very, very basic stuffs of welcoming everyone who came in. So our first set of consumers were actually people who came through the LinkedIn posts and the social posts that Mohit and I had put on our own social handles. And from there was where the journey started, right? And of course, there was discovery which was happening. But what we did was with every person who in the order that got delivered, we would make sure that there was a very personalized touch to what we were doing and we could kind of narrate to them and tell them what is it that we were trying to do. And that, of course, like, or during the course of it, we will try our best. But if they may, if you make any mistake, kindly let us know. Uh, what do you like about us? Let us know. What is it that you don't like about us? Let us know, right? And uh, more than I used to actually make customer calls, like constantly. Anyone who shopped, we would call them and say, where did you find us? How did you know? Where did you first see us? When, how, when you bought us, what was the thought in your mind? And we would do all of those calls as well, right? And I think it was these calls that helped us articulate the message that we wanted to tell people at large. And while all of this was happening, as he said, right, March 2017 was when we launched our pregnancy range. And one year, eight year, one year later was when the baby care range launched. The baby care range actually launched with a brand film, which I had shot with my daughters in my house. And a large part of it came from the fact that the authenticity of why you're doing what you're doing was what something was hidden for everybody else. It was the Mohit in my background that kind of got the first set of consumers saying that you're not just any other FMCG player, but your parents who are looking to build and create a better world for their children, right? And then I thought, and the fact that you used to import initially before you started, and I also import, that these stories are very relatable to everybody else. And we did a lot of storytelling in the first year and year and a half. But then later, what parts of the story and the story had hit home and when we knew it did, we actually created and packaged it in the form of a video and then started talking to a lot of people about it, right? And that was when the first film went on various mass media platforms, not very, very mass, but to spend that allowed you to do whatever was where we went with those messaging to a lot of people. But I think before that, 
Also, what we did was to get a larger buzz in one year. Of course, there was a sharp growth in the one year, but we took help of a lot of influencers to kind of let them know and let their audience know that yes, moms coexist. We took a we we sort of collaborated with a lot of Facebook groups, parenting portals, because our audience was there largely. And then we started doing conversations through them to get our first set of adopters. And with every person who came on board, our only mission was to make sure that one customer actually gets you another five. And then those five get you a lot more and 10 and then 10 go to much more, right? And which is where everybody had their own personalized referral codes. Everybody had their own personal things where they could make benefits out of growing us and growing with us. And, and I think what was the most beautiful and differentiated about us actually was the fact that we became as what we wanted we became a part of people's lives we would get stories where women would say saying that i have your body butter and your body butter is a part of our nighttime regime where i and my daughter sit together and we apply this lotion to moisturize ourselves over the winter there was a lady who was on her way to delivery and who called us up one day and said that it was a call actually at 10 30 and as i said we were customer care so we would pick it up and i was like what is 11 o'clock? Should I pick up the call? And he said, you know, I said, pick up the phone. We weren't doing much. And uh, I picked up the phone and the lady was like, I've placed an order. Can you make sure it gets delivered in the next two days? We were like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Like if you want us to get delivered in the next two days. So when are you expecting your baby to be out? And then she was like, I'm on my way to the hospital. I'm in like, and that is, these are the moments where you're like, okay, if someone can remember you on the way to the hospital, when they are having their first child, then they're never forgetting you, right? And of course, we made all the time. We paid extra money because we couldn't, you know, sort of afford very sharp, very fast, uh, very speedy shipping at that point of time. We paid extra money for her to make sure that she got it when sort of the product reached to her. And those were the stories that we kept building on. And those were the stories that we start, keep, kept maintaining our relationships with. It was a box that she wanted. The box went ahead to become one of her bestsellers. Because what we did with the box then was the fact that if you want to have it as soon as you have your child, then what that essentially means is that it is something that everybody should aspire to be. So we have a round box for pregnancy and we very quickly started seeing it and we started propagating that and very quickly seeing that that became a symbol of announcement in pregnancy. There was a celebrity who actually put up a post saying that I finally got my mom's school box and now I'm, I think that was that was what we kept picking up from every of these uh, consumer interactions and kept building onto them and started making marketing stories out of them uh, and started creating buzz. And that sort of hit home with everybody else and made us what we are today. Hmm. So essentially, instead of investing in like performance marketing, you were investing more in content marketing. Yes. For, uh, for the initial one year, yes. We did start uh, performance marketing in about six months of our start. But of course, you don't have a very high budget to spend very large amounts. So there were, of course, little spends that you were doing on performance marketing. And then, of course, now we do spend a lot on performance marketing as well. <laughs> but yeah, those were those additional days and then it's, it's really nice. Actually, it's very interesting because more than I've never done a podcast together, I think. And this one we've done after a very long, maybe just one is what we've done together before. And all these conversations are just taking us back the memory lane when it was about six years back saying oh yes we did that oh yes we did that so I'm sure that the 
end of the recording, we are going to have a call sent with set up with all our marketing team saying, "Listen, we are not doing all of this anymore, and we should do more of this." <laughs> so, uh, Mohit, then tell me, like, so that twenty-five lakhs once you launched Baby Care, then next year, what was it at? Like, what was the trajectory like? Oh, with Baby, we were very soon doing about a crore, crore and a half a month total. Wow. Uh, then a lot of moms actually started coming back to us and saying, "I'm not pregnant anymore, but I still love your products. Can I use them?" <laughs> and I, that expanded okay. us. That got us to thinking, saying, "In fact, that was the eye-opening, I think, moment for us when we said maybe the definition of mom that we are thinking of is very narrow, right? Just pregnancy and post-pregnancy. Uh, once she's a mom, she's a mom for life." Uh, and over the years, also moms became more aspirational. The mom influencers started creating this entire idea that when you are a mother, you don't need to give up on everything else in life. You can be a mom and have a career and be fit and look good, right? And it's all about taking care of yourself. Uh, and that allowed us to expand the definition of the mother to include all of these other categories. So mm-hmm. then we went from pregnancy and baby also into face care. Fall for moms is a very large category and a very big concern. So we launched health fall mm-hmm. and went into care care after that. And of course, as you expanded the categories and the definition of moms, now that's mm-hmm. when we started run rating about one hundred and fifty crores. Right, and that journey took us about uh, two years to get to one hundred fifty crores annual. That's amazing. Okay, yeah. And so, so this was like when did you hit one hundred and fifty crores? Which year? This was a uh, this was about uh, two years after that, like twenty maybe, like. Early. Yeah, March 2020. So, so 2021, right in that time frame. Yeah. yeah. So uh, how did the pandemic influence your strategy and, and your distribution channels? Uh, like one quick question. So initially you started on uh, marketplaces. When did you launch your own D2C website? And at the same did time. Did you also launch? Okay, both at the same time? We did D2C at the same time. I think that's been fairly consistent over what's really changed with the pandemic. It opened up retail for us. Like offline? Offline retail. So we had, again, driven by consumer insights. So consumers started calling us and saying, how can you be so irresponsible? Right? E-commerce is shut. You are the only thing I use for my baby. If you cannot deliver to me, do you expect me to use some other brand? Like that's you being an irresponsible brand. And for us, it was a insight to say we probably reached a, a space in the lives of our consumers where at least in the top cities, we need to be an offline retail. Right. So interestingly, when the world was shutting down retail, those three weeks of e-commerce being shut opened us to the opportunity that retail had. And how by thinking about the entire doctor network, maybe we were dealing the retail journey for us. Doctors, anyway, that entire channel wasn't working with pandemic people. There was a lot of scare and hesitancy. Right? There were no waiting rooms anymore. Right. So we shut down that team and that uh, business, which was doctor led. And we pivoted that to being more massy retail. And so in the next few months, when retail was looking for, hey, how do I get consumers back uh, into stores? We went to retail and said, we will be one of the partners who help you do that because we have significant offline. And so we went and partnered with a lot of modern trade stores. We went and spoke to a lot of pharmacy chains, beauty chains, and they used the Momsco as a pivot point to say, consumers, why don't you come back? We now have the Momsco in our stores as well. And so while the D2C and marketplace journey continued accelerating because consumers were now moving online very quickly, uh, we that journey, we we got faster on with a lot of product introductions. And I let Malika talk about that journey. But on the channel front, it was really 
how do we go crack deals which you wouldn't have got earlier and expand into retail during these first six months of the pandemic. If you like to hear stories of founders, then we have tons of great stories from entrepreneurs who have built billion-dollar businesses. Just search for the Founder Thesis Podcast on any audio streaming app like Spotify, Ghana, Apple Podcasts, and subscribe to the show. Okay, so like 2020, what was the split between marketplace and own website? Like which was about 70-30 So the marketplace seventy and website about thirty percent. Offline was five ten percent at that time. Correct. Mm. So and what is it today? Like uh, offline own website and marketplace. Uh, depending on the months and of course we've joyoed a bit given the market scenarios. Roughly we do about sixty percent marketplaces, twenty percent website and twenty percent offline now. So what about the new product launches, Malika? Like what all? Uh, uh, like you want to talk about that a bit? So we have a very interesting set of about some twenty odd products that are launching this year, and as said, right, it's again expanding. So we sort of sort sort of split our lives into pregnancy care, face care for moms, and baby care, and we have products launching across all categories. We're also launching home care this year, which is very interesting for us. Home um, care, okay. a new space, yeah, a new space that we're entering. Yeah, so we're just what does home care mean? So you're laundry detergent for kids, huh. surface cleansers. Yeah. Dishwashers and cleansers, so like basically stuff that you use in your home, and then because it's very close to when you want to sort of have a cleaner, uh, more natural space around you, when you want to sort of protect the environment as you're protecting everything else, a cleaner range of green products for home use. So, what sells well on which channel? Like, like I mean, either of you could answer this. Like, which products sell well on marketplace? Which products sell well offline? Like, what are the trends which you have seen? They're very similar trends because it's actually what people someone says. Do dikta hai, wo dikta hai. Can't say in Chennai, or they won't dikta. Or don't you know? Anyway, then it's just that whatever you're advertising about gets sold on all platforms altogether. It might be the contribution per channel might be very different. So for instance, Nike will have a lot more of beauty portfolio that gets sold there. Amazon and Amazon has a has a has even a very higher contribution that comes from baby as well. Your website, of course, is your brand site that sells both products. Retail, typically, whatever you're selling online, it kind of mimics the same platform and the same this thing on selling offline as well. So, pretty much similar spends. There's not a massive difference that we have seen in SKUs across channels. Are they dramatically different from what anywhere else would be? So, I think it's pretty similar in terms of sales. And what are the top selling products? Like, yeah, so we have we have an under. So we have an under eye cream, which is like a bestseller and has been a bestseller for the last two years across all platforms. Uh, it's one of the one of the market leaders in the space. So it's a very interesting concept where we used coffee to kind of help remove dark circles and puffiness, and it comes in a very interesting roller format. So you can the format allows you to also gently do a little massage on on the under eye area. So that's one. Our gift box, as I said before, right, the pregnancy gift box and the suitcase that we have for baby, those do exceedingly well because they're one of very high gifting options. Plus, people just sort of find it very easy where they get everything in one space and they can just pick it up, right? So, view of those. And uh, from our very recent set of launches, we have seen these products in terms of face washes, which are doing really well. So our vitamin C face wash has really picked up, and our new range with vitamin C is also doing quite well. So I think fairly distributed across baby, pregnancy, and uh, face care. 
So uh, tell me about how you do product development. Like you were talking about this uh, under eye cream, which has an innovative form factor. How do you go about doing this? Like, is there like a agency that helps in designing it? Or do you look at what's going on globally? Or, or do your manufacturers tell you, okay, this is something which I can make? Or, you know, how, how does that happen? Like new product development? So the new product development completely happens in the company, within the company. We don't outsource it to anybody. No part of it is outsourced from packaging to actual, you know, sort of development of the product. We take extremely high pride in really creating products that are world-class in terms of their experience of using. And hence, what we do is we control the R&D now. So there's a brief that goes to the R&D team and the R&D team starts working on creating the products. We have very strong guard dates on what we like, cannot like, use. So how, does the, how does the brief go to them? Like, like, let's start from step one. How do you decide, okay, let's launch a, a product like this? Like, how do you make the brief in the first place? So first few ranges have been like, what's not available and what needs to get created. So when we were doing pregnancy, it was a first personal experience initially where I came back and realized there is no products. And that's what you stand up creating. And, and I think that's, that's uh, fairly easier. In terms of figuring out what products to launch because your portfolio is really small. So I talk about what we do now, right? So in terms of what we do now is we try and sort of figure out what are the market needs in terms of what are the consumer facing in terms of challenges that are unmet and what are those met needs that are not sort of really standing and solving for what they should be solving for. Those are the two white spaces that we see where we say that, look, these are the places where you want to start from first. And just one indication on what you could make next. The other indication is what is it that the consumers are searching more and more now, right? And whatever they talk about or whatever they search is what also goes into product development, right? Because those are going to be the needs, if not now, in about three months, six months or one year, depending on how soon someone makes the adoption. The third very interesting format that we have is that, you know, once in a month, I go and have conversation with all the all the followers that we have on our social page. So the Mom's Ghost page is about 240k followers right now. And what we would do is I would on Mondays go there and ask them questions in terms of saying this is the whole day where I would personally be answering all questions. We call it the session that you can ask Malika anything. Whereas I, as a founder, I go and speak to everybody who has any question on anything related to product, personal life, parenting journeys, anything at all. And during the course of that is also where I keep feeding in product questions on what ingredient would you like us to launch? What product would you like us to launch? And that all sort of gives you a lot of feedback from the consumers. Once this is the product that you want to do and these were the main asks from the product, that's when you give the brief to the NPD team saying that this is what the product actually needs to do. This is the format in which I want the product. This is the consistency, fragrance and all those parameters get done. And then that, then they start the work of actually hunting real actives that can actually bring in a lot of efficacy in the products. And also for us, we have a much larger guardrail of what we cannot use in a product and what we can use in a product because we don't use any of the, the toxins, no parabens, no sulfates, and a lot of other no's that people really don't know about, right? And once we do all of that is where the product development happens. And once the development happens... So you have like a lab testing. where uh, where products are being made, like yes. they're being mixed and tested and all of that. Yes, yes. So the products are made and tested and then they go to separate labs for third-party testings. If there is an efficacy claim in terms of whether you want to check if the product's actually doing what it's supposed to do, we get uh, third-party clinical labs to kind of validate that with real consumers or with machines that kind of give you those results. And once you have all of it is where you go ahead and actually launch the product. 
So the testing is fairly long. It takes about six to nine months for every product to get tested. And that's the kind of time you spend in testing and of course development and all of that as well. And what about manufacturing? So once you've made a formulation so and the, you decided, yeah. Yeah, so once the formulation is made and all the consumer studies and all the lab studies have happened, is when uh, the NPD team, which is there, does something which is called a tech transfer. Tech transfer is basically where the team goes to the manufacturer's end and actually does the first few productions. So to kind of give them a flavor of what it is and what it is not. And of course, before all of this is where all approvals happen in terms of getting their FDA approvals and all of that. But after that has happened is where the real development team and the tech team, the NPD team will actually go there and do the tech transfer, create the products and then does a few launches. And then once also checks at the same point of time whether the product is the same as what we had made in a smaller batch because sometimes from a smaller batch to a bigger batch, some things might change. So everything gets fixed at that point of time. So they do that. Then once those products get made in the factories where again the testing happens on the product at the factory's end. And once the testing is approved is where the products get packed in their respective packaging options and get shipped out. So tell me about the funding journey subsequent to that first round with DSG and Sama and like till the, the current, like, so now I, I believe the Good Glam group is like a majority owner now. So so tell me about that whole journey. Maybe Mohit, you could talk about that. Yeah, it's been interesting. We actually did three rounds of funding with DSG and Sama after the first one. Every time we would go out into the market, DSG and Sama would say, we want to double down and give us better offers than everybody else. And we just, we love them. They're fantastic investors who really know how to build brands. Right? So we stuck with them for... Yeah, give a timeline also. Like, what, So what, we did our first round in almost every year. So 2017 was one round. We did a round in 2018. In 2019, we did a round and then that we doubled down on that round. Expanded. How much in each? Like, So in our entire journey, we raised about 10 million across three rounds after the first one. So we did 9 million more. Starting last year, Madhika and me started having conversations saying, what will it take to make the moms go 500? And we said this... And last year you were 150 crores. Right. Right. So about that, so rendering about that. And the so like a 4x growth. Hmm. Yeah. Right. So what will it take, right? Because now you're a very meaningful player in the market. You really helped establish mom and baby care as a category. We had successfully expanded and redefined mom skincare, right? Created that as a subcategory. And so the question we started having is, what would it take for us to get into 500 crores? Right? And to beat that and then go beyond that and beyond that. And the options that we kept coming up with was our vision for the brand was always to solve all pain points for a mom globally. And what we were excited about was how do we take the brand global? And every time we started having conversations with investors, we felt that if it was a regular VC or private equity investment that we would, two things would happen. One is we would have reached a scale where we are too big, right? And the only out for all of us would be an IPO. Uh, and as you start to expand into multiple countries and so on, you're adding more layers of risk and potential return, right? So that was one question which we kept coming back to saying, is that a journey that we are very excited by? Second, going back to the point, if you really want to go big globally and you have a proven business model, then it's a question of speed, right? How quickly can we do this? Uh, and how quickly can we go launch into retail, which was very big for us? And how quickly can we go and launch internationally? Right? Every time we worked back from the vision, we said much more than having just capital, what would make a big difference in the journey would actually be an investor who can come in with infrastructure. 
right? Retail infrastructure in India and global infrastructure to pan this out, right? And so with that intent, we started talking to a lot of players. Uh, where that journey ended was we had five offers. Okay. So I think very blessed, yeah, to have five offers across FMCG companies, pharma companies, and the Good Grab Group, right? All were buyout offers. And we said, of all of these guys, right, who is the one who will give us the most importance and give us the most of a free hand to go out and scale? And from all of those answers, the Good Grab Group kept coming up, which was my gram at the time. Uh, but it's been an incredible journey since then, right? So yes, we completed the full acquisition in October. We continue being very deeply involved and growing the brand within the Good Glam Group. And yeah, the journey of two 500 crores has taken off to a good start. So does uh, Good Glam Group have that level of infrastructure which, say, a, a, a traditional FMCG company would have? Like that was what you were looking no, for? No, but I think like... what they have, they're trying to fight a very different game, right? And now I should say, we are trying to fight a very different game. I think the one fundamental belief all of us have is that brands of the future will not be built like brands of the past got built. Right? And so the content levers that we have across PopXO and Baby Chakra and Scoopoop are very, very large. Right? And that allows for the last set of traffic and very large brand introductions for you. Right? The community or the uh, creator ecosystem that the Good Glam Group now has is very large. Right? So we actually have access to the highest number of creators for any company in the country today. Right? And if you believe creators and influencers can be a large part of brand building, then we have access to a lot of those. Uh, retail, of course, we've started, but we don't need to be as a brand across all FMCG touch points. Right? We're not that mass. What we need to be is be in that all the touch points as L'Oreal is it, and that we can build in the space of a year. Right? So that retail ecosystem is getting created. The benefit we get is if I was trying to try and do this as the Momsco individually, I think it will get very expensive because I'm doing it along with a large sales ecosystem. I get a shared cost, right? And so what I get for the same amount of money that I put in, I actually get a far wider reach. Right? So okay. both from a content and a community and a retail ecosystem, what I'm getting is far wider reach a very differentiated channel ecosystem because we own traffic, right? And we can use that to our benefit far better than others, right? So I'll give you one other like, added benefit as an example. I think by the time this podcast launches, we would have launched a loyalty program that is across the entire Good Grab group. Right? So the first of a kind, you know, digital first loyalty program that takes MyGram and the Momsco and St. Botanica and the other brands that get added to the portfolio. So suddenly what's happening is as a brand, I actually have a chance to acquire not only companies' uh, brand or consumers for the mom school, but consumers for every other brand and vice versa. And so there's a lot of this very, I would say, digital first new age synergy that will play out and that we are, you know, in the early days of exploring within the larger good. So essentially, Goodlam would have a lot of data around consumer behavior and hence be able yeah. to target them with the right kind of product across their portfolio. So they would Correct. know, okay, these are the best consumers for Bombsco or these are the best consumers. Let's say, like, I think Peabody is also part of the group. So, so accordingly, they would be able to do better targeting, better segmentation. Customers of one business, like Bombsco customers could be cross-sold products of Peabody or Peabody customers could be cross-sold products of Bombsco. And, and especially through the loyalty program, it becomes easier to use your loyalty reward points across different uh, platforms. Absolutely. 
and then access to influencers. So, which would be through the content platform like Baby Chakra and Scoopoo. So, there you would be able to do better brand awareness or brand awareness at a lower cost. Correct. Yeah, and like I said, right, think of this as the starting point, right? Because brands of the future will not be built like brands of the past. One of the, if I go back to earlier in our conversation, right, a lot of the initial growth of the Momsco came because of what we were able to do with consumer insights, picking up the phone call, doing one-on-one sort of things and activations, right? Our hope with the brand is that we can do a lot more of those now at scale. Right. So then over time, what you're doing is you're differentiating yourself from a generic, another Me Too FMCG brand. Like every brand, honestly, today is saying natural toxin free, right? Even though we started the movement five years ago, right? When everyone is saying the same thing, here is the, our opportunity as the Momsco uh, to say it very differently and to continue being on the forefront of personalization and communication with the mom. Right. Uh, that's the ecosystem that we are now building out. Yeah, and uh, does Glamco have uh, like an offline distribution in front? Their products go offline also? Yeah, so by the end of this year, we're uh, targeting to be in about 100,000 stores. And as a group, uh, within that group, the Momsco will pick, uh, I think probably 25,000 stores is where we'll get to. So uh, how will that work? Like they have an offline sales team and that offline sales team will sell products across the group. Let's say any large FMCG company, right? If you look at Unilever's, you know, Unilever has three sales systems. One is for detergents, one is for foods, one is for personal care. That personal care sales system sells all personal care brands. Let's say they go into the same store and sell six soaps across all the brands. It's the same, right? So you have a joint sales system, which is retail. That same retail ecosystem works for all the brands. Hmm. And uh, what do you estimate you'll close this year at? Like top line wise? Oh, it's very hard because we're in the initial phases of getting into it. But our target is to very quickly cross the 250 mark. So I want to do like a little bit of D2C economics. Maybe Mohit, you can help with this. Like, So a D2C company doing say 100 CR in top line, what percentage of that goes towards marketing spend? What percentage of that is for the cost of product, uh, cost of packaging, cost of distribution? Like, can you break that down? Like, It's different for every D2C category. Right. And, and I'll give, I'll start from the broadest, right? Selling food at 100 rupees has very different economics from selling a mattress at 10,000. Right. And so the way you calculate lifetime value, do I have to capture it in the first transaction or can I capture it in the person's first year? Right. That changes the equation and the dynamic a lot across every single category. I'll tell you the broad economics that when I speak to investors, investors are looking out for. Right? And I think that's probably the, the way to look at it for now. Right? What do they today consider a healthy business? Now, effectively, top to bottom, they say, if you're doing about 100 rupees in revenue, roughly 25% should be your cost of goods. Right? About 20-odd percent to 25% should be marketing. Right? So that leaves 50. The remaining 25% for you should be overheads, trade margins, cost of goods, etc., there's like distribution cost, like what you pay as marketplace commission. Yes, so 35 to 30%, right? And hopefully then there's another 10% on all sorts of other overheads, including your team. So that in your pocket and in EBITDA level, you're at a 15%, right? Those are considered great D2C economics. The way you get there is very different. So if you're selling a mattress, then ideally you spend a lot on overall top funnel, but ensuring the first order makes money. 
If you're doing food, you could give away the first order for free as a sample and then have a product quality that's fantastic so people repeat over time. If you are selling makeup, then it could be just that you sort of break even on your first order, but consumers then buy lots of different shades and colors and styles of makeup. So maybe they just buy very frequently, right? So that changes over time. But I think if you're selling something for 100 and you can end up at an EBITDA of 15, uh, then that's very, very good economics. And what is, how did you figure out pricing? That what should you price it at? Like, what is the strategy to take towards pricing? Do you look at what are competitors doing or do you look at cost plus or like, like just in terms of figuring out pricing? So the Indian consumer is value conscious, right? Value, the definition of value for a consumer changes, right? Our job when we were pricing was always to think about the consumer and say for this particular product in this category, what does the consumer consider value for money if you are a natural toxin-free certified high-end brand, right, effectively. And so the way we benchmarked ourselves was to the leading premium mass premium player in each category. So we continue to do that for every brand, every product. Now, of course, there is a whole D2C segment, right? So new age brands are a segment in ourselves. So now it's easier you benchmark yourself against those. Earlier it was, where are you switching your consumers from? Right? So as an example, if I think about baby care, we were definitely priced much higher than a Himalaya Johnson's. But we also made sure that we were priced much lower than a Sebamed or a Cetaphil or any doctor recommended brand. And our logic was, look, compared to the, compared to the mass brands, we are natural toxin free certified that they can't claim to be. And compared to the clinical brands, we are natural toxin free and cheaper. Right, so give us a try. Yeah, what about beauty products? Like, how would you compare to, like, say, a L'Oreal, a Body Shop, and a Hindustan Unilever products? Like, where would you be that day today? I think over time, what we've learned to do well is for every category, pick up who is the top selling competition in our price bracket. Right, so it's not just those. Right, we also have competition now from a Plum and an M Caffeine and a Wow Mama Earth and a whole bunch of other DUC guys. So it's the same logic, right? We say, what are those guys offering at what price points? Compared to that, why should a consumer choose us? And that's how we do the pricing for every product. Hmm. Does the cost of distribution change from online to offline? Like online, you would pay uh, like a margin to Amazon uh, and you would have logistics costs. I think it was very different because it was deeply discounted in online when we started. Over time, I think it's become more or less similar. Most brands are omni-channel now, right? There are cases where the distributor sells online. If the economics are very different and online is cheaper, which means that you will end up discounting more online, which means that your offline retailer will buy from Amazon rather than buying from your distributor, right? So all of those dynamics have played out in the last four to five years. So I'd say today it's broadly equal, right? Any online retailer is as good as any modern trade retailer in the country today. And you said you're you're very, very hardworking. Do you, like, how do you manage being a mom and a founder? Because, like, are you able to really give enough time to your kids? Uh, how, how does that get balanced? No, it doesn't get balanced. There's a massive imbalance. <laughs> okay. There's a massive imbalance there. But I I would initially start off with the typical mom guilt that everybody has and shrug over it and, and doing what it was. Till I'll tell you this one particular instant which led me to give up all of that. And gone for an award ceremony, came back from an award ceremony and that award was like really large. Like it was a really big piece of award that I got. And my older daughter once fine day decided to hold that little award piece and then she drove around with it. And I said, what is this? What is, what is it that you're doing? She said, this is my new dress. And I said, it's a dress. She says, yes. And I said, it's okay. 
And she said, this dress is called pride. And that was the day I decided that this is it, right? So it, and I often tell my daughters, like, I might not be there to read your nighttime book every day. I might not be there when you're eating food every single day on every meal sitting with you, feeding you. But on any particular day when you think you need me or when you would want me around, you would always find me. And I would be the first one who would always be there. And that's the message that I've told them. And then I haven't missed a single recital they've had. I've never missed any PTM that they've had. I haven't missed any important decision making for them. So I haven't done any of it. But I haven't gone for every class that they go for either. But uh, so, you know, and that, that's how we're living. And I think they're growing up to be very fine children. My older daughter has a company name, uh, a tagline for the company. That's what she wants to do. Her <laughs> aspiration one year back was to raise X million dollars uh, to start her own company. So I think we're good. We think we have balance, but we're good. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, and Mohit, what are your learnings? Like things you would have done differently? Like, I actually have a list. I was going through my list in parallel to see what oh, well, what shines. And maybe I just end with this one thing, right? A large part of where we've got you today is thanks to mentors and having a set of people who we can reach out to to guide us over time. Now, as today I do my angel investing and speak to founders, I find one of the most common mistakes founders make is believe that they need to know and solve everything. Right? It's not your job to solve. It's your job to get it solved. Right? It's not your job to do. It's your job to get it done. Right? And as a founder, if you're able to step away from the day-to-day and actually guide the business, either by hiring the right people or setting the strategy, you're getting the right investors. I think that is the most important role that you can play. Right? An incredible thread on this is it's, it's very hard to read a label when you're inside the bottle. <laughs> right, which nice. is fantastic, right? So you're, you're like Malika is constantly working, right? I'm constantly working. We are knee deep into the problem of the day. Uh, a mentor just helps you read the label from the outside, and uh, yeah, so get a very sharp set of mentors to help you out in your journey, and that will dramatically improve your chances. Uh, what kind of angel investing do you do? What is your thesis as an investor like what are you sector specific or like what do you look for so a few spaces i do a lot of angel investing in the d2c enabler space right i think d2c is going to go under a massive boom and when there's a gold rush you should sell the shovel right uh, so, so those who are like creating shopify like products like yeah to yeah i think it's in, yeah. insane right because you will be an enabler to a lot of journeys and a lot of brand journeys so i do that I selectively do D2C brands as well, which I think will help create a lot of categories like the moms go went out and create. I think category creation is expensive, time taken, but has the highest chance of success in the long run for investors. So now that's my investor hat on. Beyond that, spaces which I don't know as much beyond D2C, it's all about the founder. right? Thanks to people who I've worked cozy with and who I trust, if they put their trust in a founder, and then my point is I will give you my advice and insights and if i think that you will listen right as a founder you're open to mentorship and you will listen in whatever shape and form that i can help and have a meaningful difference and then i invest in those so that part of the portfolio is not uh, sector specific if you like the founder thesis podcast then do check out our other shows on subjects like marketing technology career advice books and drama visit the podium.in that is t h e p o d 
iun.in for a complete list of all our shows. Before we end the episode, I want to share a bit about my journey as a podcaster. I started podcasting in 2020 and in the last 2 years I've had the opportunity to interview more than 250 founders who are shaping India's future across sectors. If you also want to speak to the best minds in your field and build an enviable network, then you must consider becoming a podcaster. And the first step to becoming a podcaster starts with Zencaster, which takes care of all the nuts and bolts of podcasting. from remote recording to editing to distribution and finally monetization if you are planning to check out the platform then please show your support for the founder thesis podcast by using this link zen.ai/founderthesis that's zen.ai/founderthesis